0: Welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this episode is the Top 5 Turning Points in Medieval Ireland, Part 1. In this show, we begin a whistle-stop tour through Medieval Ireland, stopping off at five battlefields to take a look at some of the most important turning points of Irish history. Over two episodes, we will see Vikings, Normans and Gaelic armies slog it out for dominance, and along the way meet some of the great characters from Irish history. Some of them are well-known figures, like Brian Boru and Strongbow. Others are less well-known, but equally fascinating, like William Leah de Bourgh and Flan Cine. This show contains the first four, while an episode released next week will have the final turning point. Now, before we begin, I would just like to remind you about my upcoming book entitled Witches, Spies and Stockholm Syndrome, Life in Medieval Ireland, which is coming out in a few weeks. This book is full of fascinating accounts from Medieval Ireland. Focusing on the lives of ordinary people, the book looks at everything from what people did for fun in the Middle Ages to darker events like warfare and the Black Death. If you've enjoyed the podcast series over the past three years you will love this book It will also make the ideal Christmas gift for anyone with an interest in Irish history So with that said let's begin our journey through Medieval Ireland beginning in 908 at the Battle of Ballymoon Our first turning point is the Battle of Ballymoon, fought just over 1200 years ago, in 908. Ballymoon is situated east of Bagnallstown, in North Carlow, in the upper Barrow Valley. A rural, sparsely populated parish today, Ballymoon's most well-known feature is a Norman castle that was ominously abandoned before it was ever completed. However, centuries before the Norman Masons' carved rock, For this unique structure, Ballymoon witnessed what was one of the great battles and turning points of early medieval Ireland. Now Ireland in the early 10th century was a hyper-competitive world of rival kingdoms, each trying to dominate the other. While minor warfare was frequent, the extended O'Neill family, a federation of two kingdoms stretching from Donegal right through to modern day Derry, dominated the island. The O'Neill's ascendancy was based on a custom whereby the Northern O'Neills, centred around Derry and Tyrone, and the Southern O'Neills, centred around Meath, rotated the position of High King to the exclusion of all others. This arrangement worked well, producing what was effectively a superpower of medieval Ireland. By the year 900, the O'Neills were stronger than ever, having endured the worst of the Viking onslaught, a series of attacks by Scandinavian raiders, that had begun a century earlier. Indeed in 902 they had overseen the destruction of the major Viking fortress of Dublin and banished the Scandinavians from Ireland entirely. No longer had they rid themselves of this problem than they saw the rise of a challenger from within Gaelic Ireland. The Kingdom of Munster situated in the southwest, had long been their greatest competitor for power and dominance. In 902, a warrior bishop, Cormac, son of Quillenon, rose to lead Munster and it finally seemed Ireland had witnessed the arrival of a man who could challenge the O'Neills. However, if Cormac was to succeed in seizing O'Neill power, it wouldn't be easy. The O'Neills were ruled at this point by one of the greatest kings in their history, the great Flansinna, which means Flan of the Shannon. After Cormac came to power in 902, Flann was only too aware of the threat he posed and the two kings fought minor skirmishes through the opening decades of the 10th century. However, the blood spilt across Ireland in these encounters was far from decisive and it must have been obvious to all a day of reckoning was approaching between the two kings. This day finally came in 908 when Flann pushed south with an army. Reaching Ballymoon in North Carlow, he was confronted by a major force led by Cormac. While today we judge armies in tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands, 10th century forces were small, perhaps only a few hundred in number, drawn from the upper echelons of society, led in battles by kings. Nonetheless, small as they were, their battles could be decisive, their spears and swords were no less lethal, the warriors and kings no less mortal. With spears and swords the armies of Cormac and Flan cleaved and butchered each other in the fields around Ballymoon. In what was perhaps the greatest battle fought in Irish history to that date, Flan not only emerged victorious, but his great rival, Cormac, was killed. With no challenger remaining, Flan's power and indeed the power of the O'Neills, appeared to have been consolidated. The only threat Flann faced were the intrigues of his own sons, eager for power. That said, the great victory at Ballymoon had unimaginable consequences, in ways Flann could never have foreseen. Indeed, it changed the course of Irish history. Firstly, Flann not only killed Cormac, but his army decimated what was in effect a dynasty that dominated Munster, the O'Gonoch of Cashel. Indeed the losses suffered by the Ogarnacht were so severe that they could no longer keep control over Munster. Chaos, war and misery reigned supreme as now numerous challengers made their plays for power. Word of this weakness drifted across the Irish Sea to the Vikings who had been driven out by Flann and his allies in 902. Within six years these Vikings returned in their longships and now focused Not on the redoubtable O'Neills in the north, but instead initially on the ailing kingdom of Munster, where little concerted opposition could be mounted. By 917, the Vikings were enjoying great success and Dublin was reoccupied and the Scandinavians were firmly back in Ireland. These Viking attacks served to increase the chaos that reigned in Munster after Ballymoon. This led to even greater change. Through the following decades of turmoil and bloodshed, a relatively unknown, minor, aristocratic family from North Munster were able to rise to challenge the weakened Ogonacht. They were led by Kinetheg, son of Lorcan, whose son was able to build on his father's success. That son's name was none other than Brian Baru. Brian's spectacular career, and indeed the return of the Vikings to Ireland, was only possible because of Flancina's great victory at Ballymoon. Indeed, the return of the Vikings led directly to our next turning point, the Battle of Tara in nine hundred eighty. While the Vikings took advantage of the aftermath of the Battle of Ballymoon in 908 and successfully re-established themselves in Ireland, the O'Neills still maintained their predominant position in 980, Dónalú O'Neill, the reigning High King of Ireland, died. Now, in accordance with a centuries-old tradition, he was not succeeded by his son or heir, but instead by the King of the Southern O'Neills, Mwél the II. In the snake pit that was medieval Gaelic-Irish politics, any king recently inaugurated, such as Mwél Sáchnal, was seen as potentially weak. His rule provided a chance for ambitious rivals to break their O'Neill stranglehold and power in Ireland. One such figure was Anlov Curran the Viking King of Dublin. Anlov hailed from a great family of Vikings. His father was none other than Citra Kirk, a one-eyed Viking leader who re-established the Scandinavian presence in Dublin in 917. Enigmatic, powerful and ambitious throughout his life, Anlov extended his influence through the Irish Sea region. He had even ruled a Viking kingdom centred around York in the north of England for a time before being forced out. Now, by 980, while he ruled over a wealthy slave port at Dublin, his ambitions were curbed by the O'Neills, who were his northern neighbour. The arrival of a new king in the form of Mielshachnall presented the 50 year old Andor with what could be his last chance at creating a kingdom in Ireland. Marshalling his forces. Not long after Mwelshochnal was inaugurated, Anlaw marched deep into O'Neill territory, to the royal site of Tara, sacred to the O'Neills. This was a major challenge, not just to Mwelshochnal's military prowess, but it was far greater than that. For Mwelshochnal, fighting on such hallowed territory as Tara, where he and his ancestors had been inaugurated, he simply had to win. History has not preserved Anlov's intentions. Even an ambitious man like him could not have hoped to become High King. That was probably impossible for a Viking at this stage. However, by marching to the symbolic site of Tara, he was more than likely attempting to carve out a regional power outside the traditional limits of Viking Dublin. However, this Viking King had completely misjudged the situation. Mwéa may not have been in the job too long, but he was on his way to becoming, what I would argue at least, one of, if not the greatest king in Gaelic-Irish history. At Tara, where Mwéa ancestors had been inaugurated for centuries, he routed the forces of the aged Andalve. Following up this victory, Mwéa decided he would end, once and for all, Viking designs on power for good in Ireland. In the aftermath of battle, he marched on Dublin and besieged the Viking fortress for three days and nights. Scarcely a few hundred metres squared, it was unable to hold out and Mwale broke through. Afterwards, he freed the large numbers of hostages and slaves. This was not a gesture at liberty as we would understand it. Instead, hostages were a key mechanism of maintaining power in Ireland and by Mwale taking Anlov's hostages and releasing them, he was effectively cutting the man down to size. His power broken, Anlov soon abdicated and died the following year. The Battle of Tara and its aftermath was one of the key events in Ireland before the Norman invasion. In my opinion it was the Battle of Tara and not the Battle of Clontarf that ended the power and threat the Vikings of Dublin had posed to Gaelic Ireland. Where the Vikings remained a dominant force in the city, for centuries to come After Tara They were a B-Ray power Beholding to one Gaelic king or another They were never a threat To Gaelic Ireland In the way they had been up to this On the other hand After 980 Mwelshockmull's strength Power and influence Continued to grow And he was key To our next event Although on this occasion He wasn't so lucky But before I get into our third turning point I want to take a quick break to medieval Ireland. It would be impossible to compile a list of the top 5 turning points in medieval Ireland without mentioning Brian Boru, perhaps the most famous medieval Irish king. When we hear his name we usually think of the famous Battle of Clontarf, fought in 1014 where his armies defeated an alliance of the Leinster and Dublin Vikings. I think however this event has been blown out of all proportion by historians over the centuries. It was not even the most significant event in Brian's life, indeed far from it. If you think about it, Brian himself was killed in the aftermath of the battle. His son and heir apparent Merketh was killed during the battle and his wider family spent decades recovering from the losses they incurred despite their victory hardly a sign of a great success. A far more important campaign, in my opinion, had culminated three years before Clontarf in 1011, when Brian Boru's armies finally conquered the last Gaelic kingdom to hold out against him, the Canal Connel in modern Donegal. It's this campaign that I would argue was the crowning point of Brian's life. This saw him become the first man outside the wider O'Neill dynasty to extend his power over the entire island. Brian's path to power began in 976 when his older brother was executed by a rival. Building on the successes of his father and brother before him, Brian became the King of Munster in 978 and in 1004 he achieved the unimaginable when he forced the reigning high king, Muel Sochnall, King of the Southern O'Neills, to submit to him. While this technically made Brian Boru High King, it was really in name only. Forcing Welsh Shocknell to submit was no guarantee other kings who had been loyal to Welsh Shocknell would follow suit. This was particularly the case of the Northern O'Neills and the other minor kings in Ulster. Many of the Northerners believed if anyone was going to be High King, it had to be an O'Neill. They would not support an upstart like Brian. If Welsh Shocknell was not up to the task of fighting, the Northerners were more than willing. Not content with having overcome Welsh Shocknell, a major achievement in itself, Brian took on these Northerners and launched several campaigns into Ulster in 1005, 1006, and again in 1007. Despite desperately trying to resist Brian's attacks, he eventually broke the kings of Ulster one by one. By 1007, internal division had left the north weak and in a momentous campaign the following year, Brian crucially forced the most powerful Ulster kingdom the Northern O'Neill's into submission It now seemed his advance was irresistible as only the Canal Connell held out However, after 1008 his advance stalled This final enemy in the most remote part of Ulster would prove incredibly difficult In modern Donegal the Canair Connell would not relent, even though every major king had allied themselves to Brian. Despite what were pitiful military odds, they had some reason for hope. Donegal was surrounded to the east and south by the Foyle and Erne Rivers, respectively, behind which lay the Bluestack Mountains, while on the west the region was protected by the Atlantic Ocean. As 1009 gave way to 1010 and Brian achieved no success, He must have wondered, would he ever totally dominate Ireland? While his achievements, even by this stage, were amazing, by any standards, he still hadn't truly conquered Ulster and Ireland. If he failed in this campaign, he would be remembered as the king who nearly dominated Ireland. For Brian, he knew, time was running out. In his late 60s, a great age in the 11th century, he would not live through many more winters. In 1011, he organised a major campaign to end the resistance of the Canal Connell In this campaign, he was supported by all the major kings who had submitted to him, including Flabartaghú O'Neill, King of the Northern O'Neills, and Mwael Seachnall, King of the Southern O'Neills. From a military camp on the shores of Loch Foyle, which overlooked northern Donegal, this alliance unleashed attack after attack on the Canal Connell It's worth pointing out that Brian did not and could not have participated directly in these assaults. He was nearing the age of 70 and probably would have struggled to lift a sword, let alone pointed at anyone. He was not exactly a figure that would have struck fear into an enemy. Nonetheless, the fact that he could motivate men many years his younger to fight for him was an illustration of his prestige, powers of persuasion and charisma that made him so successful. Facing relentless odds in the summer of 1011, the Cunea Connel could not win or even hold out that long. They were inevitably defeated and the King muir Runig was captured. He was taken south to Munster where he paid homage and submitted to Brian. His submission ended what had been a seven year campaign and Brian Baru was finally High King in name and deed. His achievement had huge consequences which we will look at in a minute but it was very short-lived. In 1012, the Northern O'Neill's revolted, a revolt Brian could not contain. A year later, the situation deteriorated further when the King of Leinster and the Vikings of Dublin also rebelled against his overlordship. Brian's attempts to quell these revolts ended at the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, where he was killed. If you want to know more about this, I've already made a couple of podcasts on this topic particularly the one that deals with Ireland between 1000 and 1022, looks at this in detail. However, it was the process of Brian's deeds before Clontarf, particularly in Ulster between 1004 and 1011, which had a huge impact on Irish history, I think. Having forced Mwéa the King of the Southern O'Neill's and the reigning High King of the time, to submit, he continued until he had brought down all opposition including the powerful Northern O'Neills. Brian's actions firmly ended the iron grip that the O'Neill High Kings had held over Gaelic Ireland for centuries. Indeed, for many people, the concept that you could have a High King who wasn't from the O'Neill family must have been unimaginable. It hadn't happened for several centuries. This was a far more important achievement than his victory at Clontarf in 1014. Also, his ability to claim kingship over the entire island pushed Ireland along the road to forming one single island-wide kingdom out of the numerous smaller kingdoms that existed. However, this process was cut short 160 years later by the Norman invasion, the backdrop to our next turning point, the Siege of Dublin in 1171. Our final turning point in this show comes from the Norman invasion. This invasion saw Ireland and its people turn onto a new road in its development, one which we arguably still travel today. However, this momentous invasion was scarcely four years old when it came within days of being defeated at the Siege of Dublin in 1171. The first Norman soldiers had arrived in Ireland in 1167, They were a small band of mercenaries, a vanguard of a larger force who had been hired to fight for the Gaelic King of Leinster, Diarmuid Macmurrah, after he had been dethroned by his rivals. Now These men made little overall progress given that they were few in number. However, after the arrival of larger forces, particularly in 1169 and 1170, things really began to change and the Norman mercenaries started to score major victories. Not only did they number well over a thousand at this stage but they also had technological advantages. The petrifying thunder of the Norman army's heavy cavalry as it charged was something the Gaelic Irish did not have experience of dealing with previously. It is difficult to even comprehend how people on foot held their ground while they had to look at this charging at them. The ground literally shook as these horses rode towards them. Now these chainmail-clad Norman allies of Dermot MacMurrough stormed successfully through the southeast of Ireland between 1169 and 1170, capturing most of Leinster, Dermot's old kingdom, and reinstating him as king of the region. However, they had scarcely interacted with the most powerful king of Ireland at the time, Rory O'Connor in Connacht. The real test of the invaders was yet to come. While they originally came to Ireland to help Diarmuid MacMurrah, the nature of their presence changed when Diarmuid died in May of 1171. The Normans, led by the Earl of Pembroke, a man known to history as Strongbow, had a major foothold in Ireland at this stage, having already secured the walled towns of Dublin, Waterford and Wexford for themselves. Now after Diarmuid's death, it seems Strongbow himself appears to have had the idea that he was going to take over as King of Leinster. He had married Macmurray's daughter Aoife, and this, by his reckoning at least, made him the dead king's heir. Under Gaelic law, it gave him no rights whatsoever. And there were many in Ireland willing to contest his claim. Chief among them was the reigning High King and King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor. Rory had realised the threat these Norman mercenaries posed and now he knew he had to act. A shrewd, politically astute and military capable king Rory knew if the Normans could take control of Leinster along with the towns of Dublin, Wexford and Waterford unchecked it wouldn't be long before they'd try and challenge him. While the Normans had reconquered most of Leinster they were largely based in Dublin and it was here that Rory decided he would strike at them. Together with Askell MacTurkle, the former Viking King of Dublin, who had lost the city to Strongbow the previous year, Rory O'Connor planned an assault on the Norman-controlled city. While Rory built an alliance from the west and north of Ireland, Askell raised a Viking fleet. Now with such an alliance against them, things did not look good for Strongbow. To make matters worse, they could not expect any help from England where King Henry II, fearing he might be facing the possibility of a rival Norman Kingdom in Ireland, had forbidden any further travel to Ireland. Isolated and alone, Strongbow and his followers faced the initial assault which began in mid-May, when the Vikings landed on the shores of Dublin Bay, hoping to storm the city. However, they arrived before the main army of Roy O'Connor, the Norman garrison seized this opportunity, reacted quickly and rode from the city, catching the Vikings unawares. Before they could mount a serious assault on Dublin, the Vikings were cut to pieces. The former king of the city, Askell MacTurkel, was taken alive and brought inside the walls. In a stark lesson to any residents whose loyalty to the new Norman rulers of Dublin might have been wavering, Askell MacTurkle was beheaded Scarcely had the Normans dealt with this threat than Rory O'Connor arrived at the head of a large army and began to blockade the city He was supported by a fleet from the Isles of Scotland which blockaded the port cutting off the only connection to the outside world Now there was one other Norman army in Ireland at the time but Strongbow couldn't hope for aid from them either this force under the command of Robert Fitz Stevens was also besieged in an armed camp near Wexford Things really did not look good Within the walls of Dublin Strongbow and his Normans were clearly in a tight spot Not only did it seem the invasion was about to falter before it ever properly begun but in that summer of 1171 death was a distinct possibility Now facing the walls of Dublin Rory O'Connor knew an assault was probably pointless. He was unskilled in the art of siege warfare and it would have been calamitous to try and simply storm these walls but Rory had no shortage of manpower so instead he sat back and decided he would simply starve the Normans out. The siege dragged on through the summer for two months. Now this can't have been easy on men like Strongbow. He was now nearing his 45th birthday after the rigours of a medieval life He must have struggled facing the difficulties posed by siege. The unhealthy rationing and squalor would be daunting for the youngest and fittest of men. As each day passed, the garrison of Dublin faced a dilemma. They watched their own bodies grow weaker and thinner, yet they looked at a potential food supply every day in their horses. However, if they ate this living piece of military hardware, they would surely be doomed to military defeat. With no hope of food getting in and less hope still of a relieving force arriving, the Normans grew desperate and eventually Strongmore began to negotiate. He offered to acknowledge Rory as king if he could hold Leinster as a vassal. Rory felt a Norman leader was in no position to negotiate, but did offer him the cities of Dublin, Wexford and Waterford. Feeling he was in complete control of the situation, Rory however at this point made a disastrous move when he sent a large part of his army into Leinster to raid. The Normans quickly realised that this was their last chance of victory and an attack was worth risking, so they launched a last gasp sortie out of the city. This mounted force caught the Gaelic Irish unawares and broke the besieging army. Rory O'Connor who had spectacularly snatched defeat from the jaws of victory could no longer hold his army together and his alliance began to fall apart. This gave Strongbow a chance. He now had some breathing space which he used effectively to solidify his position in Ireland. Despite the toll the siege must have taken on him he swung into action. He first relieved Robert Fitz near Wexford. Then he crossed the Irish Sea to Wales Where Henry II, the King of England, was preparing to come to Ireland to see exactly what Strongbow was up to. The two men made their peace after Strongbow reassured Henry he had no intentions of setting up a kingdom in Ireland. This, however, was disastrous for Gaelic Ireland. In October 1171, the two men, after waiting for 16 days for bad weather to pass, crossed the sea to Ireland. Henry Bringing a massive army with him King Henry II Who had proclaimed himself as Overlord of Ireland Now made Strongbow Lord of Leinster It was unquestionable at this point That the Norman invasion proper had begun There was no pretenses anymore About aiding Gaelic kings Indeed what was probably the last chance To defeat the Normans Had passed at the siege of Dublin If ever there was a decisive moment In Irish history That was surely it Over the following decades, the Normans conquered around 75% of the island, transforming the economy and society. Indeed, it is in this colony where our fifth and final turning point takes place. That's for the next podcast, but in this we will see Norman Ireland face its greatest crisis when an invasion from Scotland and a revolt of the Gaelic-Irish in the West threatens the very existence of Norman Ireland. So until then, Sloan.